This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. I cannot wait to do the things we get to do today. We're going to talk about imaginary friends. Did you have one when you were a kid? Maybe a great big abominable snowman? I didn't have that. I'm sure I had an imaginary friend. I think I did, actually. I don't really remember the imaginary... Am I getting too old if I can't remember my own imaginary friends? We are going to talk about whether or not they're healthy for kids. Parents hated imaginary friends. They didn't want their kid having one. What's your kid doing over there? Uh, nothing. No, they're talking to somebody. What's your kid doing over there? Uh, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're... I have an imaginary friend named uh, Bobo who comes around uh, every Tuesday and has tea. Oh, so uh, so how's your kid doing? That was the attitude. But, but, imaginary friends are not bad things. They can't exactly protect you from wolves, but they're not bad. And this is something that we're going to dive into in 10 minutes from now. I can't wait for this conversation because we have one of the leading authorities on development of kids. Dr. Jonathan Plucker is going to join us. So that's coming up. Now, what else are we doing on the show today? We have just received confirmation. I love this. This has happened. Uh, just, you may have heard my phone go buzz, buzz. Um, Jade Kovacevic is going to be here in our studios talking about her championship winning goal, her time in Italy, because she has done that in the past year. Just basically what she's been up to. She will join us in studio. Okay. We've got to talk imaginary friends and. If you want to conjure up what you used to have as an imaginary friend, please feel free to do so. Because apparently, as much as our kids, uh, you know, may not use imaginary friends as much as we did, what we were doing may not have been that bad. There is a new UK study, and it shows that less than half of the 1,000 nursery and child care workers that were surveyed Less than half said children in their care had imaginary friends. And 72% of respondents said that fewer children have imaginary friends now than even five years ago. Well, we have found someone to talk to about this. And that someone just happens to be Dr. Jonathan Plucker. He is the Julian Stanley Professor of Talent Development at Johns Hopkins and the president of the National Association of Gifted Children. In the United States. And it is great to have him on the show. Dr. Plucker, thank you for joining us on London Live. Oh, thank you. Imaginary friends. Uh, just about everybody used to have one. And at mm-hmm. the same time, parents always kind of went, eh, I don't know if I like this imaginary friend stuff. Now we have a survey that suggests there are fewer imaginary friends. And people are saying, I don't know if this is a good idea. Uh, which is it? Is is it good to have an imaginary friend? Is it not good to have an imaginary friend? It is exceptionally good to have an imaginary friend. And I can illustrate this with a really quick anecdote. Um, I was at a conference with my family. My daughter at the time was maybe three. And um, we went to an aquarium during sort of a break in the action. 
And it was time to go back to the conference. I went to go get her. And I, I could tell she was talking to someone, but I couldn't see who. And as, when I, as, as I bent over to say, honey, it's time to go back, she spun around on me and with a look that only her mother can give me said, uh, I'm having a meeting with my friends. You need to wait. And then she spun back. And so then I went to the conference, which was a creativity conference, and a friend said, hey, um, did you guys go to the aquarium? I was like, yeah, 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 it was fun. But this really weird thing happened. And, and I told him the story, and he asked what you just asked, which was, wait, is that good or bad? And I made the mistake of saying, I don't know. And I didn't realize that the world's two experts on imaginary friends were sitting right in front of me. And they both spun around and for the next 20 minutes lectured me on the fact that having imaginary friends is a fantastic thing. Believe it or not, it is the one personality characteristic across fields that that actually predicts adult creativity um, better than almost anything else. So, I mean, I've been there. I've been in parents' shoes where you go, wait, is this normal? Should we be discouraging this? The research is very clear. It's a very good thing. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Plucker, who is the Julian Stanley Professor of Talent Development at Johns Hopkins University and just named president of the National Association of Gifted Children. Congratulations on that. So, okay, that conversation sounds fascinating. What sorts of things were they telling you? Well, I mean, it really, having imaginary friends, um, especially at a young age, um, which this uh, newest study was also focused on, kids below the age of about uh, four, uh, for whatever reason, it really seems to be how little kids practice sort of uh, being creative, being innovative, uh, being innovative using, using their imagination. There doesn't seem to be any research that's found any downsides with it whatsoever. Um, so this new study uh, is concerning, right, in that it basically found that if, um, uh, that if, these little children are on interactive devices and they're interacting with software programs, um, uh, that may actually be replacing that imaginary friend time. uh, And that's probably not a very good thing. Yeah, that's just it. I always wonder about kids being unable to be bored. And maybe that's where imaginary friends come from. You you know, you don't have anything going on at the moment and and your mind begins to wander and I I can't get into the head of a two-year-old or a three-year-old or or even a four-year-old, but you think that that you start creating your own fun. I mean, that's part of being a kid. And are kids creating their own fun now or is it being created for them all the time? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there. Um, and I mean, I, I would even say that there's probably a difference between, say, Legos and Minecraft. Everyone talks about Minecraft as sort of being 21st century Legos. Legos are 21st century Legos, right? Like they're still here. You still build with them. You still have to use your imagination. With something like Minecraft, yeah, you're building stuff, but then it comes to life and does some of the imagination for you. That worries me. And so I have an older child who just started college, and then I have one who is at the end of uh, middle school. Um, and they've had very different technology experiences, right, in that an 18-year-old is not really a digital native. We've only had smartphones for, what, 11 years now? Sure. Uh, the younger one is a digital native. That's, this is the only world that he's known. 
um, when she was bored, she didn't reach for a uh, device as she sort of grew up through adolescence. She read, she found other stuff to do. I'm a little nervous because my son does tend to just grab the iPad, grab the phone. So he's never bored, like you said, but we actually may be losing something when we lose that boredom. Where's the self-motivation to be creative, to challenge yourself more? Um, And the downside is we know that having imaginary friends, using your imagination, being creative, playing in, in, in a creative way, predicts all these important um, adult life outcomes. My concern is that we may not see the damage this is doing for 20 or 25 years, and then it's too late, right? Because we're going to see, oh, wow, uh, students today in college and in uh, the workforce aren't as innovative. What happened? It may be too late for us to backtrack on that. Wow, and that's kind of chilling to hear someone like you say that. And yeah, if you don't have the, this is what's happening, and here are the results, and there are so many things, it seems, in our lives right now that are going through that. I mean, we talked about CRISPR a little while ago and how, yeah, you're not really going to see what they're they're manipulating through the genetic code for 20 years or 30 years or until those people have children. Yeah, but by then, who knows what's going to be happening? This is this is kind of a, a similar thing on the, the inside. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, uh, you have older uh, children, but they're about my daughter's age, so they aren't really digital natives, too. They've kind of grown into that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think I think for parents like us with older children, young adults, the question was always about TV, right? Um, you know, is is exposing them to too much television before the age of four or five a bad thing? We we didn't have to worry about lots of these devices. Um, and I'm just wondering what you think. I kind of have a working hypothesis here about if if TV with these young kids is better, worse, the same than this device problem that they're starting to discover. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, we we really did monitor without setting rules of, oh, our children are only going to get an hour a day of TV. We would just make sure that the day was also filled with books. We would make sure that the day was also right. filled with going somewhere, doing something when they were young, writing stories, you know, creating things. And, and that was something that we just, my wife and I just do because that's that's kind of who we are. Um, right. The one thing about TV that that I'll say is I would look at some of the shows, and we made some shows not allowed in our house. We're not watching that, and you would think, oh, okay, well, well, that was this show because of violence. That was this show. No, uh, we outlawed Barney. You were not allowed to watch Barney because I didn't want the kids on the show Barney to be role models for my children. I didn't like. Right. I, I I just didn't like the way that those kids were portrayed. And the other show we didn't let them watch was Caillou. Because, again, I didn't mm. like the role model that Caillou was. He was a very whiny kid. And I, I didn't I didn't like that. So we outlawed that. But in terms of watching TV, yeah, they watched it. But it was kind of a blend of everything else that they did. So lay yeah. your working hypothesis on us in, in terms of TV. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's definitely the way that we've tried to do it, too, with ours. And um, I think that's a smart strategy, is to, is to just not be passive about it. 
Um, uh, just because other people are letting their kids watch a popular show doesn't mean it's a good fit for your kids and sending the right messages. But my broader working hypothesis here is that TV is a little bit different because TV is never going to be as interactive as a software on an iPad or your phone. Um, and so that in some ways, TV can get boring for kids. <laughs> um, because it's not as interactive. So I'm actually wondering now, and um, I have no research to back this up whatsoever, but just reading the studies really gave me pause for thought this morning about whether um, TV actually, being less interactive, actually doesn't have much of an impact on things like imaginary friends and creativity. It doesn't have a big negative impact. It probably doesn't have a very big positive impact either. It's just kind of a neutral filler, whereas this study provides us with evidence that um, uh, that using these interactive devices and these uh, software packages actually is not filler, and it's actually taking things away. So I'm actually wondering if that's worse than just TV, although, um, like you just said, a, a varied approach, lots of different activities, different forms of uh, stimulation is probably the best way forward. Yeah. Dr. Plucker, it's been fascinating to speak with you. I hope we get to do this again. Thank you so much for your time Absolutely. and your insight. Dr. Jonathan Plucker, Julian Stanley, Professor of Talent Development at Johns Hopkins University and the President of the National Association of Gifted Children, as we talk about imaginary friends, and, and it turned into some talk about raising your kids on TV and what role that should play. But, yeah, the the interactive idea, the Minecraft being the Lego of this generation, I'm with them. I've watched Minecraft play, and it's amazing, but it's different. You can't say it's Lego. It's not. Lego is looking at instructions and then building a Lego thing when you first get the box and then when everything gets blended together, it's building something that doesn't even have instructions, but you're doing it physically. You're you're planning it out a little bit more than you're allowed to. Minecraft is all they they still have that heroin for the rat where it's oh I gotta find gold. Oh I gotta eat. Oh I gotta sleep. Oh there's a zombie. That's Minecraft. So it's it's different. Andy tweeted, sometimes I have to admit I am that heroin addicted rat. So am I I'm, I'll be completely honest. I had to take a video game off my computer. It was called Eastside Hockey Manager. You were a general manager. I had to take that away. There were people who were citing divorce in the UK over its soccer version, Championship Manager, which is still around to this day. They can get a little excessive. FC London, champions of League One Ontario in the League One Ontario playoffs. And they did it in pretty dramatic fashion. Think about it this way. When we talked with Ian Campbell yesterday, they had played the same team that they met in the championship match, the Oakville Blue Devils, earlier in the season, and Oakville had won the match 4-0. That's fairly lopsided. That's that's a fairly convincing win in soccer. So they take on a team that they had to overcome. They had to even get over the idea that, yeah, this this is that that same team that, that beat us by a lot earlier. Not only did they do that, in dramatic fashion in the 84th minute, Jade Kovacevic scores 
the match-winning and championship-winning goal, adding yet another goal to a very distinguished resume. We're lucky enough to have with us right now in studio Jade herself. Jade, congratulations. Thank you very much. You've been part of championships before, but how's this one maybe a little different? A nil-nil match, late, extra time is kind of out there, maybe it's coming, and you score the winner. Have you ever scored a championship winner? I didn't look that up. You know what? No, I don't think I have. Okay. No, well, this one was very special. Check the box. Yeah, absolutely. And you've checked a lot of boxes in <laughs> soccer. Let's go back to minute 83 and a half. Where were you on the pitch and what was happening? Well, um, you know what? I think if you back up even a couple more minutes, um, I had just missed a really clear-cut opportunity. I had beat the keeper. I was on a breakaway. And apparently I had an open net, but uh, I didn't pull the trigger and... Uh, I missed a scoring chance, and to come back from that in such a big game, you know, it's it's difficult. Um, and you know, Oakville was pressing us really hard and and coming down at us, and they had ample opportunities as well. So, um, in that moment, you know, we only had so many chances in on goal. So, um, you know, I just knew that it was a beautiful pass from Marissa, and uh, I had to put it away. So Marissa feeds the ball through to you, and. There's just this element of patience if you watch the goal being scored, where a lot of people might have just said, all right, I'm just putting this on goal. You didn't seem to do that. Is that just a natural thing? Is it hard to describe? Or was there something in your strategy that you can remember? Uh, You know what? I think it's more along the lines of it's something hard to describe. It's one of those moments where you act on intuition. And, you know, I felt the keeper bit a little bit and... um, I saw the far post open, so under composure, I placed it with my left foot, and once I saw that mesh move, it was the best feeling in the world. That means you got to watch the ball go all the way through. Was was it just a, a vision of seeing, you could see, hey, this this is going, or did it take for the mesh to move to know? You know what? I think it took for the mesh to move because I missed probably 10 opportunities before that, and... You know, I didn't have my best performance in front of goal um, for the 80 minutes before that goal happened. So, you know, to finally do my job right and put my team ahead, it was a great feeling because everybody behind me battled for, you know, every minute before that. So it's my job to score and it's also our job to uh, put the ball in the position for me to do that. And my team did that for me. And um, yeah, it was a great feeling. Jade Kovacevic in studio with us. Championship winning goal on Saturday, and there's so much more to talk about your time in Europe, and I don't know how much you can talk about what comes next, but we'll get to that in just a minute. But it's it's interesting to hear you say that is your job, scoring goals, and to take that as a, a job. When did you realize, maybe as a player, that, that that was it? I mean, when you're nine years old, scoring goals, hey, it's fun. But when that is your position and that's your role, when do you start to realize that as a player? It's a really interesting question. I think in the way that uh, Mike Marcosha has built our philosophy, I do have defensive roles in the team and um, at time to time uh, that those do come out. But uh, one of my biggest roles in the team, I think, is my effectiveness in front of goal. And it's not that I have the pressure from my team or my coach to score. It's kind of a pressure that I put on myself because I think I'm good at it. I think I'm able to find the back of the net and... Um, I think that added pressure is good for me because it helps me perform in big moments. And 
Uh, it's kind of a standard that I set for myself. So um, I kind of think it's a good thing. It pushes me to be better. You score in the 84th minute, which is great because it's before the final whistle goes. You still had minutes left. What were those minutes like? Oh, my goodness. It felt like I was running through quicksand. It was Time was falling like molasses. It was the longest, I think, seven minutes of my life. And I was just, you know, watching the play, pressing everywhere I could, running until I felt like I had no legs and also keeping an eye on the ref, too, hoping that she was going to blow the whistle soon. So, um, you know, our our teammates, my teammates, wore their heart on their sleeves that night and to not concede a goal and come out with a championship was the best result I think we could have came out with. Amazing. You've been there before. You, you've won championships with FC London before, but there were teammates who hadn't. Mm-hmm. What was it like looking into their faces? It was a feeling of accomplishment because, you know, you're seeing young kids, uh, 2002s, 2003s, we, we can name them. Ali Hicks, Carson Furman, Juliana Popovich, Haley Burke, Maddie Machenzi. Um, I apologize if I forgot any of you, but, you know, those, those girls are in high school right now. And for them to experience a moment like that when they've been, you know, a huge, huge part of our success, they come to our training sessions and they act as the opponent for us to prepare. And for them to have to sit through that and kind of be a pylon more or less, you know, it takes a lot. Um, and sometimes it can be boring, but all of their dedication and their time and effort was hugely, hugely a, a part of our success. And, you know, every single one of our senior players is, is grateful. And uh, it's just great that, you know, they got to put the gold medal around their neck at the end of the day and um, they get rewarded for all their dedication that they gave to us. Because, yeah, when it's maybe a hot, hot day in July and they're out there and they're doing what the other team does. Oh, for sure. They may not realize, hey, this is this is the impact that it can have, but that's key. Oh, yeah. And they also have to give up, you know, time with friends, time with family. And, you know, it's like four or five times a week on top of that. Plus, we're traveling to Toronto, right? So it's a lot to ask of them, but I think they really enjoyed themselves and they got to experience what it's like to be in a semi-professional environment. Yeah, that is outstanding. Jade Kovacevic with us in studio. We are going to talk when we return about Europe, your time in Europe, and certainly your time with Fanshawe. I don't know. When was your last off-season? I don't know if you're in an off-season right now, but when was the last time you actually had a a little bit of a break from this game? You know what? Uh, Yeah, we were talking about this earlier. I think... um, my off season last I can remember was when I was coaching with Fanshawe back in 2017. Um, I took a brief three month period off, and uh, it was nice. But you know what? I really missed the game in that period. But I was still involved. Um, but yeah, it's been a really long time. Um, <laughs> I feel like my body's kind of craving one at the same time. But uh, in in no sense am I ready to hang up the boots and stop training. I'm I'm definitely you know setting my sights on bigger things and um, opportunities that could come my way overseas. So Outstanding. Jade Kovacevic with us in studio on London Live. Jade scored the championship winning goal on Saturday for FC London to bring them their third League One Ontario title. And right now it's almost like Jade is still at the field because <laughs> you've got a, a Gatorade water bottle with you. Yeah. And uh I do. The Gatorade water bottle, I don't for any parents 
who have kids who are just starting to play sports, if you're looking for a water bottle, I'm not sponsored by Gatorade in any way. I have no <laughs> connection to Gatorade whatsoever. Nope. But that water bottle is the best water bottle. It's the green one with the orange top. Mm-hmm. It doesn't leak. Hands down, the best. Never leaks. You know, it definitely... Durable. Yeah, it can go through hockey masks, mm-hmm. lacrosse masks, you know, squirt your teammate in the face if you want. <laughs> It's one of my favorite things to do with it. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. And the teammates you were talking about who are a little younger may have been recipients of that. 100%. Yeah. That's, 100%. that's part of being on the team. Absolutely. It's welcoming them into the group. That's how you know that other players on the team have accepted them. <laughs> exactly. You have to do it. Yeah. But yeah, if you're looking to buy a water bottle, don't necessarily go and find some fancy one with a big long straw on it. Get the Gatorade water bottle. Yep. You will not be disappointed. I don't know how many of them. I've purchased in my life because I have kids who sometimes leave their water bottles somewhere. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk soccer. You were able to play professionally overseas this past year. Can you take us back to how that even came to be? Yes. Um, we're looking at, you know, last year around this time. Um, I actually was playing for Fanshawe. We were going through the season and we made it to the national championship by the end of that, um, you know, I was starting to talk with my agent uh, representing me. Um, he had connections over at uh, Roma Calcio Femminile, which was in Rome's second division, Serie B. And um, he linked me with uh, that club. And I was set up with an amazing, amazing um, placement. I was in a nice uh, apartment in a small little town uh, 20 minutes from the Coliseum. Uh, via Metro. And, uh, you know, I lived with a couple teammates. I got to train three, four times a week. Um, you know, I got to travel to Southern Italy, North Italy. I got to see Milan, um, the West side, the East coast. Like it was incredible. Um, you know, an overall great experience while I was there. I tried to learn a little bit of Italian. How'd that Um, go? You know what? Uh, speaking not so well, it's very hard. I, I had a very, very difficult time. Um, understanding the language and, you know, uh, all of that stuff, the structure. Um, but by the end of it, I think I could speak probably as a, at a kindergarten level. Okay. Maybe. maybe Order a hamburger. Yeah. I don't know if you eat hamburgers in Italy. Probably not. Bad probably example. Probably not. No, but uh, <laughs> coffee. Absolutely. I learned how to order a coffee. Um, uh, but definitely I could understand conversation by the time I could leave. So that was cool. I could interact with my coach who didn't speak a lick of English, but um, obviously Italians are very... Use a lot of hand signals, so that was uh, it was clear on the on the pitch. So there was no no problem there. But um, yeah, it was a different environment in terms of the playing style. It was very physical. Um, the girls were much bigger, um, and the game was surprisingly direct. Which um, so what do you mean by that? Meaning like um, you know if you if you watch men's pro, for example, Serie A, um, it's a lot of passing, a lot of small sided control of the ball, a lot of possession style. Um, whereas on the women's side, it was very direct in like a lot of counterattack, a lot of long ball, a lot of uh, just going to score, not a lot of tactics and build up and things like that and strategy. So that was kind of disappointing for me um, in a way because, you know, if, if you look at the principles that I come from, from FC London, we are all about keeping the ball, building up, utilizing every single player on the pitch and not bypassing anybody. Um, so it was an adjustment, to say the least. It was uh, the first month, I think, I was exhausted after the first 15 minutes of playing. <laughs> so it took a lot to to adjust, but the experience in itself, I felt like, um, you know, I took something from it and I was able to grow. 
Um, but you know what? I think uh, if I'm looking in the future, um, Italy is a, is a place I would return. Ideally, I would love to play in first division, Serie A, um, and represent uh, a club like Juventus or AS Roma. You know, that would be a dream come true. Um, but definitely am I not limiting to other countries like France or Spain or England or things like that. So, you know, um, if an opportunity were to come my way, fantastic. But I think right now um, my education is important to me and, and uh, taking time to recuperate and, and review everything come uh, a couple months from now. Yeah, everyone hears and sees and reads the headlines of what you're doing on the soccer pitch, but you don't realize that you have had a whole other life going through education oh, all yeah. this time. Mm-hmm. So where does education sit right now? Well, you know what? Um, I had a fantastic experience at Fanshawe. Um, you know, if anybody asks me, I will again and again tell them that, you know, if you choose to go to this school, you will have a great time and you'll forever be a Falcon because I'm so proud to have graduated from the business marketing program. And I'm also continuing my education doing um, a graduate uh, program in marketing management. And uh, I love being on campus. I just love being a part of the school because, you know, you just feel so welcomed when you walk in through those doors and, and you know, being an athlete there, uh, you're treated like royalty, really, like everything Nathan McFadden uh, has built there is fantastic. And I can't stress that enough. I've been in an NCAA environment before. And uh, in comparison, I mean, you're treated better because you have a name you're cared about everything is set out for you you have your schedule planned for you know you're you're given money when you travel to to take care of food like what more can you ask for yeah Uh, as a fanshawe athlete you are treated the best And I love that you brought that up because a lot of times, and NCAA is great, but at the same time, it gets this lofty perch of, oh, that's NCAA. Absolutely. And then you look at other programs that exist in college and university in Canada, and you don't realize how good those programs are. Right. Absolutely. And and not to say that NCAA Division I programs have a platform that's incredible, you know, to promote women's soccer into the NWSL and, and professional uh, platforms in the future, where I think Canada is a little bit behind in that because we don't have that professional platform for women yet, uh, and hopefully that does come soon. Um, but, you know, the OCAA has a lot to offer, and I think that there is a lot of talent that doesn't get recognized. And, um, you know, just to, to speak on my experience at Fanshawe, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think I've grown a lot as a player, but more importantly as an individual, um, just through all of the challenges that it's brought as a student athlete. So um, my professors have given me so much to take and, and put into my career and also um, the athletic challenges I've given or have been given to me by Nathan and, and Mike um, have brought me so much to challenges that I can bring in my, in my real life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, overall, I think I've been well-rounded and uh, I would tell anybody if you want a great experience in a great city, Fanshawe has a lot to offer, for Jade, sure. Jade Kovacevic with us. As we talk soccer and, and life, the women's game, having been able to see it at the European level, we've seen such great growth in North America. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the National Women's Soccer League, that we have players who are from this area who are playing in that league. We have an opportunity to have semi-professional soccer here. You look at what you're mentioning about Fanshawe. Where does the women's game sit in Europe? Is it leaps and bounds ahead of what you see in North America, or is everything kind of growing at the same time? You know what? I think um, 
definitely in certain countries, it's taken off in Europe. Um, in my experience, uh, you know, City A in certain clubs has a lot of fan support. You know, like Juventus is doing some great things to integrate the club with the community and, and to get more fans out and to get more recognition for the game. But I don't think it's quite there in the lower levels yet. Um, but, you know, if you look at England, their fans are, are you know, upwards to, I think, 10,000, something like that. NWSL fans are getting upwards to twenty five to 40,000. Um, but I think the growth is the most important thing in terms of the development and the quality, not necessarily the recognition that it's getting. Um, but you see a lot of international players um, from the U.S. women's national team or the Canadian national team going over to Europe now. Um, and it's definitely becoming more popular, um, not necessarily just the NWSL now, if you if you want to play pro. So it offers so many opportunities for young women to, you know, go abroad and experience life in, in a different country and a new culture. And I would recommend it for anyone that wants to try it because you grow a lot. And, um, you know, if you love the game enough, why not? Why not yeah. try it and take the risk, right, and, and get an experience out of it? And you talk about recognition and you also talk about the growth of the players and how important that is, the the skill level. That mm-hmm. that seems to be something that, that becomes so important to any sport that's going to succeed. How do you feel that, that that's happening for, you know, for girls? Because it used to be if you wanted to play a high level, everybody had to go to a boys team eventually. Right. Is, it, is it getting to the point where, no, we've got girls teams that – Girls can stay with. Mm-hmm. And you know what? And I'll speak on the behalf of what we have locally here um, because, yeah, training with boys, obviously, as a, as a young girl, will bring many things for you. You know, you'll have to play faster. You'll have to run faster, compete, you know, against boys that are going to be stronger than you. But we definitely have platforms now for girls to, you know, uh, pursue their dreams post-secondary or if they want to play professionally. Um, you know, well, well, let's look at OPDL. We have... Uh, this is a platform for girls to go into the provincial program. Um, and we have uh, clubs here in London that have that opportunity. And from the provincial program, that could get you a scholarship, whether that's here in Canada or the U.S. And then maybe if you get a scholarship, then maybe you can go play pro. Or if you want to go pro out of high school, which girls are doing now, if you look at, uh, I think she's Jordan Hudema mm-hmm. on the national team, she went pro to PSG right out of high school. And she's doing amazing, by the way. So. That's another platform for girls now, which is incredible that uh, there's so much talent coming up, I feel like, that uh, these girls need somewhere to put it. And it's nice that it's not just post-secondary or in the USA. So um, hopefully, uh, you know, I mentioned before a pro league coming to Canada for women. That would be great to see, Um, even if it's at a minor level for the first year, just to get that recognition started uh, because Canada has a lot to offer and... Um, League One right now, you see the final and what they did. They had one soccer broadcasting. It was great. It was a cool experience to have cameras there and make it feel like it was a professional environment. Now it would be great to see that come to life and be consistent every single game for girls. Well, thank you for all you've done in representing the city and representing Fanshawe College. Congratulations on all that you've done. We're all waiting to see what the next step is, and, uh, and I know it'll be special. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Mike. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.